How's this two-part thing working out for you? <laughs> okay, there's two. <laughs> well, the church throughout history never has been a democracy nor even a representative republic. Rather, it is a benevolent dictatorship with emphasis on benevolent and also grounded in the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative Word of God. Once you leave that, once you start operating, conducting yourself in any sphere of life, whether you're talking about the church, church polity, church, all of that, or just out there in what we call the real world, you veer from God's wisdom and counsel for life, and you are inviting heartbreak, sorrow, devastation, failure in all the most ultimate ways. And so that is why we study God's Word in the context in which it is written, allowing the Bible to interpret the Bible. Not taking snippets here and there, but taking the Bible in a particular book most often, as we've been doing in the book of Judges in the Old Testament, and again, reading it in context and learning the lessons from history, which is why God has left it for us in His great mercy and grace. Last week's entire message was really the introduction for this week's message. Sometimes those things just happen that way. Um, all that is to say is that you can always get messages that you've missed right at our website where you can listen to them online or you can burn your own CDs or your MP3 files and what have you. We are in Judges chapter 13. It's just a little bit of review from last week. And I was talking about how in light of the current world situation, our current situation here in the United States and all of that, a lot of people are praying for change in all sorts of ways, from the very highest places in our land down to our own households. We're praying for change and looking for God to bring about sort of a cultural reprieve. And I asked the question, and this really was a huge question last week, which is why I spent so much time on it, and that is, what would you do with a cultural reprieve if God granted one for the next, say, eight-year period? And the reason that's such an important question is that if a cultural overhaul, so to speak, of our nation to become a society that more closely represents the values of God, the heart and the mind of God, that represents God's very character and the things that are important to God. But the lifestyles of God's people don't change. Then why should God intervene on our behalf? Just for our own comfort? just for our own peace of mind, for the sake of being able to be carefree, relatively speaking, and just pursuing, again, all the gratifications that this life has to offer? Why should God grant us such a reprieve if that's all there is to it, if we are not experiencing a personal revival in each of our lives? And by that, I'm talking about a revival not just in worship on what happens at Sunday morning, but I'm talking about a revival in our personal lives for the totality of everything that we are and everything that we do in life. Because remember, there isn't this, this spiritual or churchy realm, and then there's everything else. It is all one and the same. Because God created it, He created us, and He created every human being for His purposes on this planet. And so it's all part of the one big package, and we have to do things the way God wants it. So if we don't have a revival in everything, again, in our lives, in our personal relationships with other people in the church, in our personal relationships with everybody out there, 
if we don't have a personal revival and renewal in our personal integrity, and again, as I said, in everything that we do, then what will happen is, is we will be exactly like the people of God who we've been studying in this book of Judges. And that's why we're studying it. Hopefully we can learn how to avoid the broken legs and broken ankles and broken arms and things that happens when we wander into sin. Let's learn from somebody else's mistakes and somebody else's pain and heartbreak and sorrow. That's the end. That's the goal for our studying in this book. And again, if we don't take the messages of this book to heart, we will, as I contend we have as a nation, we will follow in the obscene pattern that we've been seeing in this book of Judges, where God blesses, and then that blessing is followed by our sinning, which is followed by God's disciplining, which is followed by our repenting to escape such discipline, which is followed by our taking a deep breath of relief once that escape comes, followed by God blessing, and followed by our returning to our sin all over again. And it just keeps going in that cycle. So let's look this morning again where we left off a couple of weeks back in Judges chapter 13. I'm going to begin in Judges chapter 12, verse 7, just again give us the thrust of going into chapter 13. Jephthah the judge, Jephthah judged Israel six years, and then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the city of Gilead. After him, Ibzen of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons, and he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died, and he was buried at Bethlehem, and after him, Elon the Zebunite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Isn't this exciting? <laughs> then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ijalon in the land of Zebulun. And after him, Abdon the son of Hillel the Parathonite judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Prathenite, died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. There's going to be a test afterwards on the pronunciation of all these names and places, okay? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, new material. Chapter 12 ends, and the point of reading that, and those judges being there spelled out, is that the totality of the period that they judged Israel, these were leaders who were raised up by God in mercy and grace, has been a period of 25 years of what we can rightly assume was a period of relative peace, which came by way of, again, these three judges, appointed by God, about whom there's very little written. But the cycle continues, and there's no surprise there. And chapter 13 begins telling us what we've seen as part of the endless pattern in this book, and that is that God often disciplines his people through using people even more wretched than his own people who are being disciplined. It's an historical pattern with God. But on this occasion, and I'm talking about this occasion now in chapter 13, there's a difference in the pattern from what we have seen thus far in this book. There's a glaring change. Well, maybe not glaring, but there is an omission in the pattern from what we've seen in this book. Let's see if you catch it. Judges 13, 
verses 2 through 5. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Did you catch it? (laughs) It's not obvious, but it is a substantial difference. See, previously, every time that the Lord stepped in to deliver His people Israel from self-inflicted injury, it was in response to something that came about within the people of Israel that was very important. First, what do I mean by self-inflicted injury? I mean that they weren't merely victims of evil people or foreign marauders. That is, they brought their national hardship upon themselves by either, one, just flat out ignoring God, or two, by doing what God had said they or we should not do just to personalize it, or by his people not doing what God said they should do. Now, before this, his stepping in had been in response to at least a pretense of national repentance. In other words, of the collective people of God coming before God and saying, God, we've blown it again. We are truly sorry. Have mercy on us. Come and be our God once again. Sometimes that was done with real integrity. Most of the time, it was not. Well, what we've read in the narrative in this book was that each time the Lord responded to His people's plight, it was something always along the lines of His people saying, well, we'll read it, when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Again, they came to God with that that, that unified mindset of we've blown it and we are here to repent before you. But here, and God responded. But now in chapter 13, his people have been under Philistine domination for four decades, for 40 years. And yet, we do not read of any such plea. What do we make of that? First, understand that Israel had been oppressed by the Philistines for a long time, not just this four decades long period. You might remember, or might not, that we started reading of the Philistines in the book of Judges all the way back in chapter 3. Just by way, again, of refreshing our minds, let me look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. We read there, now these are the nations which the Lord left... These are the nations, and remember they had no, these are the nations that made no pretense about worshiping Jehovah God. They were pagan, they had their own idols, their own gods, small g, etc., etc. But the Lord left them, why? To test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war those who had not experienced it formerly. These nations, and this is where it lists them now, are the five lords of the Philistines. And I just cut it there, and it does mention the other nations that God left behind. But it says that they were for testing Israel to find out 
if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. So all this is to say, and I've talked about this a lot in the opening weeks of introduction to the book of Judges, is that what looked like a normal kind of quarrel that just nations and people groups have, it was much more than that. As the years pass, we arrive in chapter 13, and now there has been this disturbing transition. And I mean, there's been this disturbing change from the pattern on the part of God's people. That change is that God's people, it seemed, rather grew used to oppression at the hands of the Philistines. So over time, and without a teacher to tutor them in their own history, their lack of freedom to live and flourish and prosper was hardly even noticeable. They became used to it. Well, how come? It was because over the course of time, they settled into a new normal. And that new normal was called bondage to the Philistines. It's not the first time that God's people accepted oppression as a way of life. Remember when they were in Egypt, which they were there for four centuries, 400 years. So previously, the pattern was God's people would sin. They would suffer for their sin thanks to the loving discipline of their heavenly father, not because God enjoys bringing pain upon his people, but like a loving earthly father, he will exercise discipline on his children to bring them back to himself, to prevent them from greater pain and sorrow. And so with the discipline that God exercises on them, because of their suffering, sure enough, they were brought around to repent, to say they were sorry, to cry out to the Lord, and once again, he would send them a cultural reprieve. He would come and he would save them. But in this particular epoch of Israel, again, they seem to have accepted their lowest state of living in bondage. And even though they are being disciplined by God through the evil Philistines, it's their new normal. And so they're yawning about it. And that's really bad news. But there's also really good news. The Lord's rich in love. And the Lord is slow to anger, writes the psalmist. His name is great and his heart is kind. And for all his goodness, will we keep on singing? There's 10,000 reasons for our heart to find and to do so. Let's stand. The bad news was that God's people had grown accustomed to God's discipline. And that discipline looked like everyday goings-on in the life of His people. But that couldn't happen to us, could it? Could the church of Jesus Christ actually grow used to oppression and hardship and loss of freedom to do God's work here? In America? The church, remember, is called the body of Christ on earth. That's not my name for it. 
That is what the Bible calls the church, the body of Christ on earth. Well, what do you call it then when the body of Christ on earth accepts, grows used to, embraces, even endorses and encourages, in some cases, the murder of children in the womb? Or do you not understand that there are many churches, even denominations, which embrace abortion as a good solution? In those cases, what that particular body of Christ, remember, that's what the church is called, the body of Christ on earth. And in that particular situation, the body of Christ on earth is teaching those within that particular body of Christ, as well as those outside the body of Christ, that Jesus, who is the body of Christ, who was on earth, embraces abortion as a good solution. Maybe you never thought of it in those terms. What is it when the body of Christ on earth rewards prideful sloth and professional laziness, refusing to exercise any discernment from the dictates of Scripture of what biblical benevolence looks like? God gave us these things for a reason. What is it when the body of Christ on earth not only accepts but promotes and blesses the most vile kind of perversions, blaspheming the glorious and the beautiful creation of Ish and Isha, to use the language of Genesis, that is, the genders of man and woman, of male and female? Do you not see that we are beset with sin and in our nation and in our churches and in our homes? And it is from being accustomed to oppression by the spirit of the age and we have grown used to God's discipline. And I have no doubt that there are some in here probably right now thinking oppression. Now? Here? Now. We are growing, in fact, as a people. We are growing in compassion and tolerance. We are more like Jesus today than in the archaic forms of yesteryear when the body of Christ on earth was judgmental and hateful. Please hear this, that standing fast on the precepts, that is, on the instruction of God's morals, morals which emanate from His own perfect character that He has revealed to us, is not judgmental. It is holy. But the body of Christ on earth has grown so used to oppression that it doesn't even recognize that it is oppressed, which underscores my point exactly. But there is good news. Thank God there is good news. And it is that God is in control and God has other plans. 
He has other plans for his people in Judges 13, and he has other plans for us. For the people of Judges, those plans include raising up yet another deliverer, judge, Savior. The word in the Hebrew is translated all those ways. Savior is probably the most profound and the most apt. And he's going to raise up yet another deliverer or Savior named Samson. And getting a little ahead of ourselves in verse 25, it says that he, God, will stir Samson's spirit against the Philistines so as to get Israel worked up enough or hurting enough to do what they didn't do already, which was what? Remember what what the change in the pattern was? They have not yet cried out to the Lord, saying, God, forgive us and have mercy on us. So he's going to bring that about, which is the point of loving discipline. What I want to underscore by way of explaining why we are even bothering to study this book, it is is that it's the Lord who gave his people into the hands of the Philistines. Those whom the Lord loves, writes the author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And while it is painful, the writer goes on to say it was for their ultimate good. For the moment, the writer of Hebrews says, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Meaning, those one who experienced the discipline, who received it, who got it, and who changed the way God wanted them to be for their sake and for their quality of life. The Lord does these kinds of things. We say we know God is in control. I say that all the time. I teach that. I preach it. I know it at an ultimate level. I know he knows what's going on, to be sure. But most of the time, that doesn't really translate into my daily meanderings through life. And I know what Paul's letter says to the Philippians in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, where he says, Have no anxieties about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds fixed on Christ Jesus. I know that. I've obviously memorized it. I memorized it about a million years ago with my children but I still have major anxieties about many things. And I am just thrilled. I truly am thrilled that none of you are like me. (laughs) God being in control is way more than God merely knows what's going on. And that is what 
I want not just to see, but I want to so believe it that I start living in that supernatural peace that circumstantially doesn't even make sense based on the particular times of the day or whatever it is that you're going through so that I can get over some of that anxiety. So God raises up another Savior here in the book of Judges because God is on the move this time. Not because His people cried out. They didn't. In fact, it was in spite of His people. The Lord is on the move as He was in Samson's life where God stirred Samson's spirit. As I was working my way through this message, which again I began two weeks ago, giving part one last week, as I work my way through the completion of my annual reading through the Bible, what month is this? March? I'm getting close. I'm getting close to last year's schedule. See? You know, we all, we all have those times, those years. And as I was working on this, it happened to put me right smack dab in the book of Ezra, coincidentally. Yeah, right. Remember what I said, God being in control is way more than just knowing what's going on. Well, this is what I read in the book of Ezra. In the first year of King of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation, he being the king, made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. And his proclamation was this, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, here's the point. That wasn't King Cyrus's vision for his kingdom. That wasn't his vision. It wasn't the king's superior leadership that decided, here's what we're going to do. It wasn't his civic plan for renewal and jump-starting the economy and the, the just the, the liveliness of the people of God. It was totally God's doing. That's why the text tells us, God stirred Cyrus's spirit. Now let me jump ahead several millennia. To the year 2014, Vladimir Putin invades a sovereign nation. And it doesn't seem to be a big deal to a lot of people. Either they don't realize why it should be a big deal, or they really just don't care because it doesn't affect them at the moment. But you see, that is precisely what happened to begin what would become World War II. Hitler began invading sovereign nations. And much of the world just wanted to either ignore it, or if they got really fired up about it, to scold him and tell him, bad boy, this really shouldn't be done. But then how many of our younger generations today even know what Hitler was all about, much less how he managed to do what he did? 
By the way, did you know that President Henry Harrison died this past week? It was a very sad situation, very sad. Ninth President of the United States, born 1773 and 1841, but he died last week. And if you weren't here last week, you're going, what? Are Just ignore it. That's just kind of a little, okay, get you out of the heady stuff here. See what you missed by not being here every week, I'm telling you. Well, 200 years before the Lord stirred King Cyrus's spirit to issue forth what Cyrus thought were his plans, but they were God's plans. 200 years before that, the prophet Jeremiah pens the words of chapter 29 of the book bearing his name. But let's begin with what he writes in verse 10. See, most of us are familiar with 29.11. If you're not, you'll probably be familiar with it when I read it. But let's start with verse 10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, in other words, this was not a happy time for God's people, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So his people are living in Babylon. They are once again living in oppression. Now, verse 11, that a lot of Christians know and memorize. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. But you see, there's a context to verse 11, which is why I read verse 10. It's not a mindless promise of prosperity as it is often used today. It is the end product of God's people having had their freedoms and their culture completely taken away. Being jailed, if you will, in foreign subjugation in Babylon. What about the verse that comes after verse 11? Then, when? When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, you, my people, will call upon me and will come and pray to me, and then I will listen to you. And then, this is the then is absolutely implied in each little part of this passage. Then you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Then, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and then I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and then I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Do not lose sight of the fact that this promise is not given to mankind in general, but to God's people. Only. Back to the book of Judges, verses 2 through 5, again, by way of repeat. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to the woman, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children. As I read this, think about if it reminds you of anything. But you shall conceive and you shall bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. By the way, this, this, what is strange to us, little intrusion here is not the norm. This is in preparation for the baby to be born, coming into the world with the vow, what is called the vow of the Nazarite upon him. It was a special vow 
It was a stern vow. It was a serious vow that an individual could make to the Lord. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, he's talking to the woman, you shall conceive and bear a son. And this also is part of the Nazarite vow. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. What's going on here is God is going to raise up a small s Savior. And this one is even distinct from all the other small s saviors that we've already talked about and studied in the book of Judges. Savior being synonymous with judge slash deliverer. Just to recap, the angel comes. We know that the wife was barren. The angel appears to her and tells her that you will have a son and that he shall be a Nazir. That's what it means to have the Nazarite vow upon you. You will be a Nazarite. And he will deliver my people. Now, verse 6 and 7 repeats exactly what we were just told. Now, why is that? Is it just to fill space? Obviously, it isn't. It is that the Lord is underlining or putting in bold, if you will, He is emphasizing this for us so that we make a connection to another story that we will read centuries down the road that is remarkably similar and vitally important to us in our day. Unlike the other judges, and you might remember some of the dubious lineages that they came from. One had a mother who was a whore. Another was a mother that was uh, just estranged and was kind of wayward and out there and everything else. But this one comes into the world, has a good family, an intact family. Mom and dad are together. And, of course, we're talking about Samson is the one that God is raising up, the one that will be born. And the story of Samson involves a childless woman who is visited by an angel and announces to the woman that he is going to be a hero. And he is uniquely set apart from the ordinary, hence the Nazarite vow. And by the way, biblically, the word holy means to be set apart. Now, why would God underscore this ancient passage? Because it sounds more than a bit like another story with which we are probably much more familiar, the story of another Savior who would not be just a small-s Savior rescuing God's people for the moment, but a capital-S Savior. God Himself in human form will be the Savior of all belief for all time, once for all time. Let's compare the story of Manoah, who is the father, of Samson and Joseph, the earthly stepfather, if you will, of Jesus. Manoah's wife was barren. The angel came to Mary. She was barren. A virgin, different reasons, but she was, that is, they were both childless. The angel appears to Manoah's wife. The angel, of course, appears to Mary. The angel tells Manoah's wife that she will have a son. The angel tells Mary that she will have a son. The angel tells Manoah's wife that 
the one she is going to give birth to will be a Nazir. Coming into the world, separated, special, having the vow of the Nazarite upon him. And Jesus, we know, and we are told, was in fact a Nazirite, a Nazarite. That's not coincidental. The angel tells Manoah's wife, and this one, this Nazir, this holy one, this special one, will deliver my people for the time. But Mary is told that this Nazir, her Nazir, will save God's people from their sins once and for all. Do you remember Luke's words about Jesus on the road to Emmaus? People were wondering who he was as he was walking along because they didn't recognize him. Their eyes were dulled by the Spirit of God. And it says, then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. You see, this is this is a, a mini-gospel, mini-good news presentation thousands of years ago through the one called Samson. In fact, to all the, to the judges of the book of Judges, but Samson in even now a more defined, more unique way. 500 years after this particular passage that we're looking at in Judges 13, another man, another prophet named Nehemiah reflects on the people that we are studying in the book of Judges. Nehemiah, in the book of Nehemiah, in chapter 9, writes the following. They captured fortified cities and a rich land. He's talking about the people of Judges. And they took possession of houses full of all good things and cisterns already hewn and vineyards, olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and they were filled and they became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nehemiah 9.25, he continues, Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them, small s, saviors, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Now we come up into the New Testament. We come up into the New Testament to Paul's writings to the church of Galatia. Jesus has come. Jesus has lived a life of perfection on behalf of all of us who never could. Jesus has already been beaten beyond recognition and executed at the cross, being separated from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? experiencing what it means to be spiritually dead, for the wages of sin is death, writes Paul in Romans chapter 3. Rather, Romans chapter 6. In chapter 3, Paul writes that there isn't anybody who hasn't sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is that spiritual death. Jesus, God himself, came and experienced that for us because our sin needed to be dealt with. And He's already now risen, conquering death, rising from the dead, because He Himself was sinlessly perfect. This is what Paul writes to the church of Galatia. 
And when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law so that He might redeem those who were under the law. He's talking about us. That we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, that could very adequately be translated because you are the children of God. This is not sexist. This is not only males are saved, obviously. Because you are sons, you are children of God, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, which is a term of endearment, meaning meaning literally, Daddy. Now the God who hates sin and who was our enemy because of our sinfulness, we have been brought into His lap because of what Jesus has done, not what we have done, such that there is such intimacy now if we have received all that Jesus has given us in His substitutionary life, death, and resurrection. We no longer have to fear God, but in fact can embrace Him and call Him Abba, Daddy. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. That's H-E-I-R, not E-R-R-O-R. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and the worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again, Paul was writing the Galatians there just just mind-boggled that after God did what He did in becoming a human being and all that I just talked about, took those handcuffs and those leg irons that every person who comes into this world is shackled with because of our sin, which we are abounding in coming into the world already as sinners inherited through Adam and Eve. And when Jesus did what He did, to any and all who believe Him. Those handcuffs were freed. The leg irons were released. And we are no longer in bondage to anyone except the gracious, kind Lord God Almighty. But the Galatians now were in effect to use His, His word picture. They were, they were, after experiencing freedom, they were going and picking up their shackles again. And going, hmm. Yeah, it was kind of familiar. And they were putting him back on. I'll put my leg irons back on. And then crying out again, oh, he's going, how can you do that? But that is what every believer in Jesus Christ does when we turn our backs on him and we just do what we want to do. We are picking those shackles up again and we are putting them on ourselves. When Jesus said, I've already freed you from the sin, you don't have to walk in such bondage and darkness. The book of Judges is just pregnant with the bad news of the sin of mankind and the great news that God in His mercy and grace loves His people enough to hurt them enough to turn them back to Him so that they might come into the fullness of all God that has for us. Do you know this Jesus? Not the Jesus portrayed in our culture, not the Jesus portrayed by the History Channel, Not the Jesus portrayed in so many feeble, even blasphemous attempts to portray Him on the the celluloid of movies and everything. But the Jesus of the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative Word of God. The Savior of all. Of whom Jesus said Himself, I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except by me. Well, that's pretty exclusive. Yeah, it is. (laughs) He was God. Take it up with him. But it was exclusive only in the fact of he is the one and only who can do it. It is not exclusive in the sense of God desires, according to his word, that no one perish. So the invitation is to everyone. You can take it or leave it. But if you leave it, you do so to your own eternal peril. Hmm. The Old Testament. Bunch of dead people long gone. The irrelevant history of God's dealings in history with his people. Irrelevant? I don't think so. But will we learn? Will we learn? God is disciplining this nation, I believe, my conviction. And he is disciplining the church of Jesus Christ. And I mean that in the broadest sense. For all the reasons that I've already discussed. And the question really is, will we hear it? If we hear it, will we receive it? And if we receive it, will we in fact repent? Which means turning from that which has has God having to discipline His wayward people. Heavy message this morning, I understand that. But an eternally important one. Let me have you stand. We're not talking about religion this morning. We're not talking about churchianity. We're talking about that personal relationship that is only between you and the Lord God Almighty. You can't buffalo God. You can't fool Him. He made you. He knows everything there is to know about you and even more than you know about you. He knows all of your days. He knows where you're going, where you're heading. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. He knows what you're going to do after church today. And if you don't know Him today, He is crying out to you, come to Me. Come to Me. And let Me work the changes in your life that will bring you what you have been longing for, that peace and that contentment, that assurance that your eternity will be in fact with Him in eternity and not in a Christless eternity in a place called hell. It's very real. If you do not know this Jesus, all you got to do is right where you're standing is just say, I feel the spirit of something tugging on me. I, I don't know. I just, yes, God, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what all of this means, but God, I know I need you today. Come and take charge of my life and show me what the very next step is and the next step today, tomorrow, and beyond. And he is more than willing to pour himself into you and do exactly that. Father in heaven, I pray this morning, encourage those who are your people, Lord. Encourage all of us who are striving to walk with you and yet, and yet we walk so often by sight and not by faith.
And those anxieties of which we are supposed to have none are so big and so enormous, Lord, and it's a lack of faith. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. And Lord, I pray for those who have never known that personal intimacy with you. I ask you would grant the gift of faith today for them to come unto you and believe, to be sorry for their sins, and let you take them on the beginning of an incredible journey. In your name I pray. Amen.